0: Enabling student agency in a world where they don't have a lot of say in what happens in their lives is maybe as important as the subject matter.
1: Welcome to the Modern Learners Podcast. I'm Will Richardson, co-founder of the Modern Learners Community and Change School, as well as an author, speaker, and parent of two great kids. Every week I do a deep dive into some of the challenging questions that face educators today, and I offer practical steps for what you can do right now to make sure your students thrive in the complex, fast-changing future they'll live in. So, you know, while the web has been around for about 25 years now, learning on the internet really started way before that way before the web was even in development. For those of us old enough to remember the days of computer modems and online bulletin boards, if you had the time and the money, you could connect to people around the world and learn all sorts of things through online communities that relied solely on text, as in no audio, no video, not even any pictures, unless you were drawing them with the keys on your keyboard. Back in those days, the Internet was a new frontier for connecting and learning, and there, from almost the beginning... ...was Howard Reingold, who I'm happy to say is my guest in this week's podcast, our second around the theme of community. Howard was one of the very early users on The Well, what many regard as the first real virtual community on the internet. And as you'll hear in this conversation, even on slow modems and expensive connections, many of the qualities and experiences that define community in our lives were present in those spaces... And what makes Howard's perspective so important is that he was one of the first to think deeply about the potentials and downsides of these connections. In fact, you know, his first book titled The Virtual Community is a chronicle of those first interactions and questions in community online. And so I appreciate the sense of perspective and history that this conversation brings to our current understanding of community. So, that conversation is coming right up, but real fast, I want to remind you once again to check out our Modern Learners community if you haven't already done that. MLC has about 1,300 members from around the world, and we're having powerful conversations and sharing next steps for creating classrooms where modern, engaged learning thrives. It's a respectful, safe space, it's away from the noise of Twitter and Facebook, and it gives you a place to think and engage and learn at a deep level. Head on over to modernlearners.community, that's modernlearners.community to join us. And when you do, check out the podcast topic to get more resources around our conversation today. And finally, as always, at the end of my conversation with Howard, I'll be back with three things that you can do right now to move your schools and classrooms to a deeper sense of community. As always, if you like what you hear today, please head on over to iTunes, give us some love with a review and a rating. Tell your friends to come by and listen to our 70 episodes now. And I hope you'll continue this conversation around community with us in Modern Learners Community. Cheers, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. Howard, thanks so much for coming today. I sincerely appreciate it. And I'm excited to have a chance to talk to you about community since I know that that's been something that you have been thinking a lot about for a long time, especially in the context of virtual communities. You know, I was kind of doing a little bit of reading. I'm I'm really familiar with your work and I've loved your books in the past, but I didn't realize that People have called you one of the first citizens of the internet, which is kind of cool. And I know that uh, you were around when one of the first virtual communities on the internet sprung up, and that was The Well, which uh, was started by Kevin Kelly and, and a number of others. I'm wondering, just to start this conversation, if you could take us back, I guess it's probably about 30, 35 years now, back to those first kinds of interactions that you, you were having online. What was your sense back then in terms of what was happening online, this was before the web, this is when we were still doing bulletin boards and and things like that. What was your sense of what was happening with the internet at that point? And what was your feeling for the types of communities that were possible given those very slow and tenuous connections that we had back then? But what were you thinking when all of this first started? Well, understand that there wasn't an internet in the the 1980s.
0: the, the National Science Foundation took over the ARPANET and turned it into the Internet. Later in the in the 1990s, but there was a a, a very lively online culture. And although uh, in in regard to the rest of the world, I was pretty early. The, there was a lot going on when I I stumbled into it. Uh, I guess the run 1982 1983. I got a modem, which was this box that connected your telephone and your computer, and it made these screeching noises when it connected. You had to connect in order to, to participate online. I think one of the, the inflection points in the evolution of the Internet was always on, when you didn't have to go through this connection, like making a phone call. It was just always there, and you you dipped into it. But back in those days, there, were, there was the ARPANET and you really had to be a government uh, researcher or a scientist at a university to participate in that. Uh, there were some students and system administrators uh, in 1980 at Duke and the University of North Carolina who decided uh, they wanted to have something like the ARPANET even though they weren't uh, defense researchers. So they created Usenet. So Usenet had been going on for a couple of years when, when I, I joined. And that was kind of a worldwide BBS that was uh, distributed from computer to computer. And I won't get into the details of, of how that was done. It was very, very kind of clever if you didn't have a big budget uh, way of doing it. But there were literally tens of thousands of these amateur BBSs, bulletin board systems, mostly, uh, in teenage boys' bedrooms. And, uh, <laughs> and only one... Uh, it was like a phone call. Um, you had to wait for the last person to hang up for you to, to join. And, and then you could add your conversation. There was like one thread. Uh, and for some reason... And it was
1: all text, right? It was no, There was no all, voice or anything. It was just all text.
0: It was not only all text. It was kind of slow. I mean, you could... <laughs> Type your login and go make a cup of coffee while you're waiting for it to, to be processed. But, right. uh, I, you know, w- one of the first things that excited me about the, the medium was that you could connect with people you didn't know, who might even be on the other side of the world, because you shared an interest. So, you know, there were a lot of different special interest uh, BBSs, you know, science fiction, things like that. Um, It it was really uh, the well that that got me uh, excited uh, about this. There there were a couple of other services uh, that were available. There was the source and CompuServe and they were a little expensive. Uh, If you wanted to hang out for hours and hours, it would cost you a lot of money. And then the, the well came along and it was like a big BBS in that 20 or 30 or 40 people could log in at the same time. And there was more than one thread going on. So it was a more sophisticated computer. Uh, the entire uh, com- computation power of that first computer is probably equal to one uh, icon on your, on your, your smartphone <laughs> today. I think uh, we knew back then that the technology was going to get a lot more powerful. And with that, we we would get uh, a an evolution in, in what was possible. But when I, I logged into the well, in the beginning, I think it was something like $2 an hour, which was radically less expensive than the other services. And it turned out if you hosted a conference there, which is a... a discussion room forum um, you could you could get uh, your your uh, fees paid for so um, I I remember going to the well office remember the well was started by the whole earth uh, catalog people right. they had an office in Sausalito California I lived in San Francisco I went to visit them and I I asked the fellow who was running the well well I, I'd like to host a conference and get get um, free uh Online time, I'm afraid it's going to take a lot of my time. And he said, No, some many, many hosts get away with an hour or two a week. So uh, that was, I regard that as kind of a Mephistophelian remark because immediately (laughs) I started spending hours a day online. You know, as I wrote in the book, it was like this party going on inside my walls. And and once I plugged into it, I could participate. and And that's when I discovered what what was to me the second unique characteristic of the medium. Not only could I connect with people around shared interests, there were conferences for parenting, conferences for arguing about your your uh, operating system, conferences for for politics, but it was many to many. and um, And there had not been any many to many media uh, before really. And so that combination was, was, was really exciting. What was interesting about the well was, uh, despite the fact that it was mostly white, and and almost entirely at the beginning in the, in the San Francisco Bay Area, it was pretty diverse. Uh, the online world before that was, you know, pretty exclusively nerds. Um, but here we had school teachers and political activists, and it was uh, Fred Turner wrote in his book, uh, From uh, Counterculture to Cyberculture, about how Stuart Brand brought different networks together. And so I think that the, the whole earth origins of this, which was really a meeting of different networks, lent its, its uh, diversity, uh, intellectual diversity to that. So I got really excited about it. My, uh, my wife uh, and very young daughter were concerned, because there I was uh, um, laughing and, 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 and shouting, and there was nobody else in the room. Um, so I started writing about it largely in order to justify the time I spent online. I was a freelance writer, and here was something to write about, so I started writing about it.
1: You mentioned in your book that Kevin Kelly, and uh, writing some of the design principles or the parameters for the well, hope that it would be a community. I mean, that was one of the, I think, the six or seven stated goals of that particular space. So did, do you, I mean, talk a little bit about what that meant. I mean, community in that context meant what at that point?
0: Well, you know, I started writing about community as kind of a pushback against the idea that uh, you, you really had to be some kind of antisocial electrical engineer uh, to want to use computers to communicate with people. And I knew something very different. Uh, I knew uh, a place where we had parties every month, um, where the parents got together to talk about their kids and had softball games, where literally we took turns sitting at the bedside of someone among us who was dying. Um, We passed a hat. We raised over $15,000 for a family who was facing leukemia with their their son. Um, There were weddings and divorces. and funerals. Uh, well, a lot of things that happened in quote real community were were happening there, and people were were forming friendships. Now, again, a lot of this happened in the San Francisco Bay Area, and one of the people who was the staff, uh, who was kind of the marketing guy there, his name was John Cote, and he went by the the uh, handle Tex. He was kind of uh, beloved by people there. One of the things he did was he actually went out and visited in person all the people who were hanging out a lot. And he had come from the farm, which was an intentional community in Tennessee. Stuart Brand hired a couple of people from the farm to, to run the well, even though they knew nothing about technology. They knew a lot about community and, um, and and Texas birthday was coming up. So we secretly organized a, a party at the well office and it turned out to be so much fun to see these people face to face that we had communicated with for hours a day online and never saw because again, it was text on a screen. And I remember one well party we had at a beach and there, and night fell and there were no lights there. And after about an hour of us uh, standing there in the dark talking to each other, I realized that we, we were just so hooked on, on communicating um, with each other. So to me, there was a lot of the aspects of, of community happening there. That didn't mean it was particularly always a happy place or that everybody liked each other. Um, and there were a lot of things missing because, of course, you present yourself in a certain way online. And that's not all of who you are.
1: Would you say that it was important for people to create some type of community in that virtual space? I mean, I, I think it's interesting. I'll read this quote that you had in your intro from M. Scott Peck, where he says, it's clearly no longer enough to be simply social animals babbling together at cocktail parties and brawling with each other in business and over boundaries. It's our task, our essential, central, crucial task to transform ourselves from mere social creatures into community creatures It's the only way that human evolution will be able to proceed. And I guess I'm wondering, here was this new space, this this virtual space that was, you know, obviously just through a computer, all text, but I guess, was there a sense that even in that new space, we had to create community, we had to create these types of connections and that maybe even those connections would be more profound in some ways than the ones we were connecting in our physical space? You know, I think it was more
0: emergent than that. I think it was things happened that required us to to reach out to each other as human beings and from that we began to develop a sense of community. I wrote wrote in the book about uh, an event in which one of the people in the community who had organized the the softball games for the parents um, came online in the middle of the night and announced that his teenage son had developed leukemia and he didn't know what to do. And we developed an online support group and we raised money and uh, it went on for a couple of years and his son died. And and there were a lot of people at the funeral and the last three pews were people who had known them online. Um, That wasn't the first funeral. And then there were the marriages and we just began to realize, well, wait a minute, we're seeing each other at, at funerals, we're seeing each other at marriages. This is not just like a, a book club. It's not just a discussion group. We're beginning to develop relationships with each other. And it was from my knowledge of community at that time was pretty uninformed by the literature about it, which I got into later. But it, it seemed to me that these personal relationships where people would care enough about each other to contrib- contribute money or or sit at their, their hospital bedside or, or or go to their wedding or their funeral that this was this was had the elements of community and so we uh, we didn't talk a huge amount about it but there but it was a, a developing sense that that we had uh, over the years
1: it's interesting that a lot of the things that you talk about happening 35 40 years ago in that space feel like they're happening right now online feel like those types of relationships are still, possible in terms of, of uh, the spaces that we have now. But I'm, I'm wondering if we kind of fast forward to today, what's changed about that dynamic? What do you What do you think is different in terms of what you experienced back then at The Well, and what people are perceiving or experiencing in community today, online community?
0: Well, we were a bit of a self-selecting group in, in those days. We were people who were adventurous enough to, to get a modem. Um, we were you know educated uh people um it was enthusiasts in those days um i don't think that that was a really a representative sample of the human race now we've got like a third of the human race on on facebook and it turns out that there's a lot of uh, bad stuff going on with the the, the human race uh, i think it's it's nothing new it's that it was not as visible before, you didn't see it really in the mass media. And I I think, again, many of these characteristics of of the medium uh, can be used for good or evil. So people who share an interest but weren't able to connect before, who felt kind of isolated, well, that can go for for people who have a rare disease. If you have a, a disease and there's only one in a million people have that disease, there's like 2,000 of you online. You know what? The same thing goes for Nazis. Uh, maybe they had been isolated. Uh, maybe they had had some small group they could connect with. Now there's a, a whole uh, network of them. And, you know, the same thing with, with, with hackers and, and, and organized uh, online crime and all of the, the bad stuff that goes on. I think it's reflective of the fact that that this is not just enthusiasts, but a, a pretty pretty good sample of the of the human race, and we just have to face that dual nature of um, human behavior. And I think the ways in which what are now called social media can amplify not just the good parts, but the but the bad parts.
1: Is there a literacy to online community that's different? from maybe the expectations or the skills that we have to have for physical space communities, do you think?
0: Well, you know, I started thinking about that actually a pretty long time ago. Um, you know, fast forward to the uh, 1990s. My daughter was in middle school. So she's 35 now. This was before uh, Google. So um, you, could, you could 1997, 1998, something around that time. And she was beginning to, use search engines you know there were search engines before google uh to do their homework and i realized oh, oh my god uh, you you go to the, the library and you get a book out that that book had a an editor and a, a publisher and the librarian and the teacher who assigned it that there were a lot of gatekeepers to assure that you got a book that was probably accurate um and even then it was clear that you did a search online you'd get thousands uh of results and some of them were not only inaccurate, but but false. Um, in particular, there was what they called a cloaked site, martinlutherking.org, that was actually run by Nazis that looked like it was a site about Martin Luther King Jr. but the more you look at it, the, the uglier a character he, he seemed to be. So I sent my daughter down with that and and told her that things had suddenly changed. That you could no longer look to the, the the text you got as the authority. You had to somehow determine whether they were an authority. You had to, you know. That's um, I think one important principle is a little bit of crap detection is is far better than none at all. I got that term crap detection from Ernest Hemingway. Um, so uh, Google the name of the of the uh, author, um, use uh, uh, a domain lookup to find out who registered the domain, it was a little bit of work. I I, I think probably I'm jumping too far ahead and we can return to this. It's not so simple these days. Um, So I started thinking about it a long time ago, but then, you know, I've been writing these books since the 1980s um, and editors and, and, and critics and Increasingly, academics were questioning is this stuff, digital media networks, any good for us? And, and I internalized that. And I, my, my response to that was well, it, it depends on what we know. And that, in fact, to answer your question, there are a number of literacies that, if an individual w- was, was literate in these skills, that individual would do better. And that if more individuals were literate in these skills, the, the, the commons, the online world, would be richer. Um, so I, I I wrote about it, oh, I guess in about 2009, 2010. I think I wrote an article about five essential literacies for Educause in around 2010, 2011. And then in 2012, I had a book called Net Smart, in which I explored five literacies in order of importance, um, attention, crap detection, participation, collaboration, and network awareness. I started with attention. You know, back in those days, you didn't watch every person on the street looking at their phone while they're crossing the the street or waiting for the light to change or driving their, their car, but it was clear that that our attention was being sucked in and and manipulated by a lot of the the, the sites that we went with. And I, like everyone else, was just attracted to what was going on online. Attention is really the the basis of thinking and communicating. So let's start there. And again, the good news is any attention to how you were deploying your attention online is a lot better than none at all right of course you can proceed from that that's what the the meditative and contemplative traditions have have had at their core is understanding that your mind jumps around a lot and that you don't really control that unless unless you try to Um, and then the second one was crap detection Um, it was Became increasingly clear even back then. 2012 seems like a, a a long time ago. That there was a lot of not just misinformation but, um, but disinformation uh, online. I started using the word disinfotainment um, about that. And of course, again, since then it's it, it's magnified to to a degree that is at a, a whole new level. So I, I tried to write this book for I. I Ideally, it would be something that you would give a high school student on their way off to college, or a parent uh, would read it to try to understand this stuff. It's not that difficult, it's just that, it, that our educational institutions have moved so much more slowly than the, than the, the technology. And, and I still think it's good for people, as individuals to be more successful if they understand these literacies, and it would be good for the commons if more people understood it. But I also think we're we're facing a a tidal wave of algorithmic power that, that in a sense, it would be naive to think that just literacy is, is going to solve the problem.
1: Hey, I want to take a quick break from our conversation to let you know about what I think is the most powerful professional learning destination for educators online, and that is our Modern Learners Community Plus. You know, at a time when change is accelerating, when social media is getting increasingly toxic, and when we're faced with big questions in education that demand serious answers, MLC Plus offers a safe, respectful, intelligent space on the web to help you make sense of what to do next. MLC Plus is about community. We're building a movement to change the experience of schooling for kids around the world to better prepare them for the world today. Our community builds our collective and individual capacity to do that. MLC Plus is about challenge. Our carefully selected links and theme-driven conversations are meant to push your thinking, to get you to scrutinize your practice, and to catalyze your journey to reimagine education and schooling. But most of all, MLC Plus is about learning. Through our diverse book studies, our live coaching sessions with the Modern Learners team, our constant conference, our special workshops and masterclasses, your learning doesn't have to stop. And since all of our interactions are archived for later viewing, it's your learning on your schedule. So if you're looking for more quality conversations with a global lens within a passionate community of educators all in one respectful, easy to access time-saving space, I'm telling you, it doesn't get any better than MLC Plus. Head on over to modernlearners.community right now, and let's change the story of education for the modern world together. And now, back to our conversation. So that's a great segue into education and the ways in which we prepare students for uh, the type of world, you know, that you're just talking about there. And and I guess the question is, in your estimation, how good are we doing with that? How literate or how, uh, how able are kids to navigate those different types of literacies? And to what extent do you think that it's, incumbent upon education to help kids become part of online communities so that we do some of that interaction and connection with them in classrooms. I mean, is that, is that a prerequisite for flourishing in the world today? You
0: no, know, I think it, it, it has to start in, in elementary school. And again, one, one of the themes, I, I repeat myself, our educational institutions are, are very conservative in the sense of change comes very, very slowly. Um, and online, change comes very rapidly. And for kids, well, they may go to school and, and uh, learn the three R's, but nobody's really talking about um, how do you tell good information from bad information online? How do you how do you have some control over your uh, attention? Um, yet, uh, well, now the the generation who are entering college now, they've always been online. The Internet has always uh, been there. They are savvy in many ways. Um, I dispute this uh, digital natives idea. Uh, It's kind of fallen out of favor, which is is good. Um, That doesn't mean that they are unskilled. Um, You know, one of the early... uh, studies of credibility online with uh, with young people showed that uh, that gamers gamer communities were were more involved in checking out whether information was was bogus or not now this was some years ago and it may have changed but another thing that that's emerged from uh, a lot of the the, the research on on interest based learning is that uh, gamers, teach each other a lot of things, that there's a, a lot of uh, peer-to-peer education going on there. And I would say if you would, these days, ask a 14-year-old, how, how would you learn to play the ukulele or configure a web server? They'd say, I'll, I'll go search on, on YouTube for that. So there's a certain amount of savvy that young people have because they're immersed in it. But there are a lot of things that they don't understand. I mean, that's why why we have school. That's why I started teaching college students. Um, around 2005, it occurred to me that it's increasingly important to understand all of the implications uh, psychologically, socially, in um, a broader scale of how our culture is changing. Um, in regard to online media, the, named social media didn't surface for a few years after that. Um, So I started uh, teaching, um, I'll skip the story about how someone who doesn't have a degree got to do this, but I started teaching at Berkeley and at at Stanford, and I was teaching about social media issues. Uh, Of course, the term didn't exist when I started. It was um, online media and collective action was one of my courses, and digital journalism was another Course and virtual community was another course. And that's really my education in the power and the limits of, of social media in teaching itself. Because if I was gonna teach about social media, it only made sense for us to use it. So we, from the beginning, I had students write, write blogs. Um, we had a, a forum. The, the online element happened in between the face-to-face meetings, and I had them do projects uh, online as well. And uh, the I, I guess the, you don't really even have to talk about technology to talk about what I discovered by talking with my students, which was enabling student agency in a world where uh, they don't have a lot of say in, in, in what what happens in their lives, it is maybe as important as the subject matter. That um, if you can help students understand how to learn the things they need to know and have a, a sense of confidence in their ability to do it, then they will pick up the things that you, you failed to convey to them. Uh, and I learned this by... At, by experimentation and asking the students what was going on, and it took me a while for them to actually trust that I was interested in, in what they thought, and I invited them to help me um, design the, the course. And so, uh, you know, I learned a lot about the the role of of social media in, well, for exen- for instance, giving a voice to those people who might not be so quick on their feet to. Enter into classroom discussions, but given an opportunity where they have time to think about it, nobody's looking at them. They're in a, in a an online forum. They can have, have very thoughtful uh, participation, and also, you know, some people may not be as 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 verbally um, adept as others, but they they're great at making memes or making videos, and they can communicate their thoughts about things in 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 different ways. Um, I remember, after my first couple of years, looking around and finding that there were very, very few people at either Berkeley or, or, or Stanford who were using social media in, in teaching and learning. And I asked the someone at the Center for Advanced Study and in, in, in Learning at, at Stanford what, what was going on. He said, well, oh, that's easy. This is a knowledge factory. And, and you're hired here because of your, your work in economics or or you discovered a, uh, an algorithm or an, an organism. And um, and your publications in your field are what's important. And if you're supposed to teach a class and you never show up, that could be a problem. But there are no positive incentives in that system for innovating in, in, in pedagogy. Um, and, you know, I decided uh, I'm not someone who knows how to change institutions, but I could look around and see who was who were the, the, the avant-garde, who were the, the, the trailblazers, who were out there experimenting. That led me to, to Will Richardson. Um, and I found out, you know, you were on Twitter and I, I started following some of the people you started following. And that led me to learn about personal learning networks, which in turn, I started uh, teaching to my, my students So it became my my participation with the ed tech community informed my participation with the students. And the students, um, through our conversations face-to-face and in social media, helped me learn about what was changing. And at the same time, I was faced with, okay, what are the academic issues that... People who are going to live in a world of social media ought to understand. That led me to understand that this argument—we we really haven't gotten into it—but very quickly there was pushback when I started talking about virtual community. This is not real community. This is a this is a, a a degeneration of of community. It turns out that that the whole field of sociology really started with asking that question in the 19th century as people were moving from villages where they had lived a uh, traditional life for centuries, to cities uh, industrialism and capitalism were starting instead of just having the traditional norms of your village, you began to have contracts and, and, uh, and rules. This was they, they uh, called this um, Gemeinschaft was the German word for community, and Gesellschaft was the German word for society. And this, this transition was viewed in much the same way that the transition is viewed today, that, we, that we're losing community, we're losing something that was valuable, the, the place where everybody knows everybody else, and that we're, we're entering an alienated world. Well, it turns out that that's, there's a lot to parse. From that, we probably don't have time to get in, into all of that. But it's a re, it's a recurring debate because right. humans have we create new ways of communicating, and when we create new ways of communicating, we we create new kinds of social forms. And as we create new kinds of social forms, it puts strains on old norms and, and ways of life, and it creates new norms and ways of life. And and there's both benefit and, and conflict. In that, And I think understanding that this argument has been going on um, in, in academic sociology for a while is important, but there are all kinds of other important, interesting texts from an, the intellectual viewpoint of a college student that are, are I think are, give you tools to think about what's going on. Irving Goffman, the sociologist who wrote about the presentation of self in, in everyday life, he talked about the way we perform our, our personalities. We, we perform differently for our parents, our teachers, our peers. He used the example of a of a waiter who has a different personality in the kitchen, and then goes out to where the the customers are and has a different personality there. This was long before the internet, but it's again a tool to, to help think about what's going on. and And ultimately, my goal was to to help students understand and find tools for understanding what was going to continue to change. For most of that time, starting in 2005, I was way ahead of most students in in regard to online media. But there came a time, I guess, maybe uh, say around 2010 or 2011, where there was just a proliferation of expertise. There were people who lived in Tumblr communities. There were the, the YouTube, tribes uh, YouTube is its, its entire universe and so one of the things one of the things I learned about student agency was that they have things to teach um, and inviting them to teach was part of enabling them to, to, to gain that agency and so we together decided that we would spend about 15 minutes every class session with one student or another teaching the rest of us about what they were excited about in you know, a medium. And I, I mentioned Tumblr because there was a, a, and of course Tumblr has changed, but there was a young woman who gave a talk about the, the Tumblr community she participated in. They were all female, smart, snarky, but not uh, not vicious. And it was just, it was really interesting seeing her, her, her show us how that worked. And um, I think, what's happened is not just the kids know more than the adults. It's that some kids know more than some other kids and that there are there is a, such a proliferation of ways to exist online that it's really impossible now to try to, to teach it all in a course. And I was thinking, I was teaching a course on social media issues. You could probably make an entire major of that uh, today.
1: I was reminded while you were talking howard about my real eye-opening time was at the turn of the century we sound so old when we say that now right but back in 99 and 2000 when i started blogging and and uh started finding a few other educators out there um, people like paul allison and terry elliott and a few others who who were experimenting with these online tools in their classrooms and that became pretty quickly, the most interesting, passionate learning I'd ever done in my life. Um, it was something that, for whatever reason, I was just fascinated by. And there were other people out there who were fascinated by it as well. And we really did, did build community around that, I think. we We got to the point where we knew each other. We knew about each other's lives. We were sharing a whole bunch of professional stuff. But It was interesting to me the way that we began to just know one another in lots of different contexts because it was around that passion. And I guess that's what, you know, I look at my own two kids now who are 20 and 22, and I see them doing the same thing. I see them learning more powerfully in those online communities, whether in my son's case, it's around basketball or in my daughter's case, it's around nutrition and health than they learn in their school settings. And, and and I guess one I just wonder how big of an impact do you think that these communities ultimately will have on the way that we operate within schools, um, both you know at a K-12 level and also a higher ed level. I mean, is this going to fundamentally change us? Because if we don't change, we are going. The learning that we do in classrooms is going to be seen as less and less interesting and relevant.
0: You know, I was very excited to discover DS106. The uh, the um, digital storytelling class that originally uh, Jim Groom and, and Martha Burtis and Alan Levine um, taught through um, University of Mary Washington. And, and by the way, I thought it wasn't, it certainly wasn't MIT or Harvard or, or Stanford or, or Berkeley where I took my cues. It was the University of Mary Washington. Right. There are knowledge factories. The, 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 the faculty there, yes, they publish, but they're there really to to teach. That um, what was exciting about that was that they they kind of broke through the, the fourth wall in the sense that they had a group blog that they syndicated from individual blogs that the students were required to to keep, and you could filter it and see just what the people in your class that who met face to face once a week were talking about but also they invited people who took the class last year or people like me who never took the, the course to, to participate in it. That seemed to me to be the kind of signal of, again, going back to, I didn't know about how to change the institution, but I began looking for the, 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 the people who were just going ahead and doing it. And I think as those people, as more and more of the, we know hundreds, of of innovators, I I did more than a hundred interviews with innovators in digital media and learning as what they're doing spreads, the institution will spread. Again, the online world's changing much more quickly. So I I gave a talk, I was invited to give a lecture at Berkeley about where things were going. I talked about things I've talked about now about shifting a lot more of the teaching and learning to the the students. Um, And then I started teaching my own online courses what was the next step and to me the next step was entirely uh, about what the online world uniquely enables which is let's eliminate the teacher what if a group of people wants to learn something they're smart people they know how to learn and they've got the they, they've got the internet um you know i think that's one unique difference i think you can do student agency and and participative learning with sticky notes on, on a, or a whiteboard. The, the technologies real, that we use really accelerate that, but that's not really what it's about. That's not the unique aspect of being in a, in a, in a classroom. Um, what is unique is that until very recently, if you wanted to learn, unless you were one of the very rare autodidacts, schools had a monop- monopoly on learning. You had to go to school if you wanted to learn calculus. Well, now you can go to Khan Academy to, to learn calculus. You wanna learn how to play a ukulele or, or um, configure a, a web server, you can go to YouTube for that. We have all of these um, powerful tools for communicating. We've got you know search engines. We have tools for organizing information. What's missing really is a knowledge of how to do it. And you know, teachers go to school, teachers mostly learn in the in the classroom. How are we gonna get peers to learn how to best use this stuff? So I, I started something called pedagogy And it's interesting, part of the, the requirement of this lecture was that I meet with the faculty and graduate students at, at UC face-to-face, uh, which we did several times. But during those meetings, I had my laptop open and I had what was then illuminate, you probably remember, that later become Blackboard Collaborate. I tweeted about it. Um, People from all over the world, educators, started listening in. And we started developing a group to create a pedagogy handbook. And what's interesting is that two months later, none of the faculty and graduate students from UC were still involved. But all these people I had never met before from uh, Mexico and Brazil and UK and Germany, they were interested. And I spent about a year helping them organize it. And then I sort of dropped out and, and, and the community took over. But um, so that was 2011. It's been going for eight years now. They have weekly online meetings. They revised the Paragogy handbook. If you go to Paragogy um, P-E-E-R-A-G-O-G-Y um, dot org. Um, that will get that will send, send you to a a GitHub publication of the, the Pyragogy Handbook. So to answer your question, I think that there's a, a, an emerging literacy of how do you use the tools online. To learn together, whether or not it's in a, a formal situation, and you know, MOOCs came along, and there was a, a huge amount of hype about that. Going back to my questioning at Stanford and the and the Knowledge Factory, I, I just kind of gave up on trying to push Stanford in any direction. Then uh, Sebastian Thrun, who, who taught at Stanford, um, famously announced that he had a hundred thousand students for his MOOC. He was going to quit teaching at Stanford. Um, yet this was going to be the future of education. You know, it was going to put the university out of business. Three months later, Stanford has a new assistant provost for online learning. Um, I still haven't seen things change a great deal there. I think they'll change as the younger faculty um, get more power. And And it turned out that MOOCs were, did not replace universities. Right. I think, however, that here's a great role for the community college because the problem with a MOOC is that you don't meet face-to-face. Um, that's the great thing about a MOOC is that anybody anywhere can join it. What about, what if you had a, a, an online MOOC that had a once a week or once a month meeting at a, a community college? There's the, the the places there, it's not being used at night, um, might be some extra income for faculty. So I see the, that there are opportunities for hybrids be, between the traditional schooling structure and this informal online learning.
1: So this may be a, uh, a bombshell question to end this with, but in the very last chapter of virtual community, uh-huh. you wrote this quote that I thought was interesting considering again, that it was from about you know, 30, 35 years ago. You said virtual communities could help citizens revitalize democracy Or they could be luring us into an attractively packaged substitute for democratic discourse. So I'd I'd be really interested in what your opinion is right now in terms of how things are playing out. Are we are we revitalizing democracy, which is the aspiration that a lot of people had at the beginning of the Internet and the Web? That was the the uh, the hope back then or have we become lured into something very different that is a substitute for real democratic discourse?
0: Well, you know, one thing that, that I didn't foresee, and I, I, I don't know if anybody really f- foresaw it, was the immense power of what's now called surveillance capitalism, that connecting human attention and and what we know about engineering attention, about about drawing people's attention and keeping people's attention. If you if you connect that with a business model that you sell their attention to, to advertisers and then you have a very huge data set, like, like let's say 2 billion people on, on Facebook and then you have this big data computational algorithm that figures out every move you make contributes to a profile of who you are and how to manipulate you. And then using that, you know, the problem with, with, with Facebook is that what makes it vulnerable to things like the, the manipulation that happened with Cambridge Analytica and other manipulation that we probably don't even know about yet is that what makes Facebook manipulable is, is also what makes it money. So we've got a, a, a great big problem there in that the that computational propaganda is so much more powerful than what public relations used to be. You know, when I sat down to write my book, I thought, what's the most important thing that about the future? And I thought, well, are we going to be more free or less free, more democratic or less democratic? That led me to the to the literature about the the public sphere, the idea that democracies are not just about voting for people. It's about a a, a population that can discuss issues and form public opinion and 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 influence Policy and, and Habermas, who formulated this this idea, had a, a couple of fears, and, and one of his fears was that that uh, journalism would be preempted, and we and the population would have the wrong stories. and the, And uh, the other one was that the science of public relations would become so sophisticated that people with money would be able to to manipulate everyone else. and, I, and, and I, I'm afraid that we're seeing both of those fears come true, and I don't know the, the answer to that, but I, I think that the idea that um, online discourse is going to make democracy healthier is, is seriously in, in, in question.
1: Well, Howard, listen, I wanna thank you so much for being a teacher in my life. Your willingness to share the work that you're doing and the wisdom that you have uh, from so many years, uh, you know, just interacting in these spaces and being a part of communities has, uh, has really helped me understand a lot more about the Internet and about how things uh, operate, not just in a social context, but in a learning context. So can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking some time today to give us your your uh, your insight as to how things are changing and, and where they might be going. Thanks so much. My pleasure. So what can you do now after listening to Howard's unique perspectives about community? Well, here are three suggestions for you first. Ask your students what online communities they're a part of. How do they interact in those spaces? What do they get in return for their participation? How did they get started in those interactions? And what kinds of learning are they doing there? See what their perspectives can teach you about the potentials and opportunities for communities online. Second, think about how the aspects of powerful communities that Howard talks about might characterize the communities you're building in your school and classrooms. How do we best build relationships and experiences that lead us to connect more deeply to one another, online and off? And finally, you know, we happen to have a pretty great little online community ourselves at ModernLearners.community. We're working hard to build it as the best professional learning destination for educators who want to be connected and want to go deep into the important conversations around schools today. So I hope you check us out. Next week, I interview educator Dave Cormier about his work to see the community as the curriculum. It's a fascinating conversation about how classroom practice changes when we change our frame for learning. Until then, thanks for listening, everyone. Hope to see you next week.